Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Sarah Bueno, and I'm a psychotherapist, among other things. And I live in Chicago, and I love having deep conversations about the intersectional journey of healing self while healing others. And today's guest is someone who I didn't even know was going to be important in my life, but it turns out that he was because he invented something that was really revolutionary to my healing. So before I introduce you to Dr. Mark Ryder, let me remind you that you can connect with us on all the social medias. So you can find me under Head Heart Therapy, which is the name of my therapy practice in Chicago, or you can connect with us as Conversations with a Wounded Healer on Facebook and in uh, what is the other one? Twitter, right? There's so many social medias. Who even knows these days? <laughs> you can also find us on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener and you're wondering how you can contribute to the podcast, one of the ways you can do that is by being a regular donor. So if you've not heard of Patreon before, it's basically a platform where people can donate to whatever. <laughs> so I donate to a couple anti-racism practitioners. I donate to podcasts that I regularly listen to, and you can donate to us too. So just search for Conversations with a Wounded Healer under Patreon, and you can find us there. Now, let me tell you about Dr. Mark Ryder. He has been a licensed psychologist in the South Lake, Texas area for over 20 years. He has a postdoctoral training in neurotherapy, EMDR, cognitive hypnotherapy, and psychopharmacology. His first book, The Rhythmic Language of Health and Disease, demonstrated that neuroplastic shifts in the brain can be created by music and imagery and were essential for health. In his next book, Revisioning Mirror Therapy for Unresolved Grief, that revolutionized the treatment of complicated grief. Together with Lynn Heselton, their latest book, Revisioning, Rapid Mirror Neuron Psychotherapy for Grief and Trauma, has created groundbreaking treatments for PTSD, personality disorders, and dissociative identity disorders without the client having to relive traumas. So you're going to hear me talk to Mark specifically about my experience. And if you listen to my episode with my best friend, Livia Budries, I talked all about my experience of going to a trauma treatment center not too long ago. And I specifically share a little bit about what happened in my revisioning sessions while I was there. So I hope you enjoy this wonderful interview with Dr. Mark Ryder. Hello, Mark. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me on, Sarah. Yeah, I always say I'm excited. I think I need to find another descriptor, <laughs> but I, I am really excited to speak with you today because this is a therapy modality that I had not heard of until recently. And so I'm guessing a lot of people haven't heard of it, and I really want to hear you talk more about it. So we're going to talk about revisioning, but before we get there, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and tell folks who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Mark Ryder. I'm a psychologist in the DFW Metroplex. And I've been in practice for about 30 years and primarily see adults. My specialties now are grief and trauma as it relates to revisioning. But I have, have a lot of other skills that I do. I'm a prescribing psychologist, so I can manage a lot of my clients' meds through their family docs and so forth. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Wonderful. And obviously, a 30-year career, there's a lot that you could share, but I'm curious how you got to where you are today. What led to becoming a therapist and what led you really to specializing in grief and trauma? It all starts really with dysfunctional families. So I had an alcoholic dad hmm. that led me into music. He both played music and I would crawl under the piano when I was tiny and listen to hmm. him play. 
But then it got pretty violent. And so I think I retreated into the world of music as an escape and found a great home there and had the wonderful luxury of being in bands of all types from high school all the way through college and even as a faculty member at colleges. So I started as an engineering major because they didn't have a lot of understanding back then about, you know, if you were talented in math and science, it was engineering. After six weeks, uh, after watching the uh, engineers who were walking around with their white socks and slide rails hanging out of their pockets, I decided that maybe psychology would be a better liberal arts degree hmm. and still felt like there was something missing. So I was in within a, I was going to graduate about a year ahead of all my peers. And I said, I just wasn't ready to graduate yet. So found a career where I could cross therapy or psychology with music. And that was called music therapy. Hmm. So I became a music therapist and taught at Montana State University and also Southern Methodist University in Dallas and enjoyed a long career doing research. I was uh, one of the researchers who kind of introduced music to the field of medicine mm. and also to psychiatry. And there I wanted to get a doctorate so I could pursue more research and did that mm. in psychology. So once I got the degree in psychology, I decided that I really like doing therapy more than teaching. Missed the academic breaks and also <laughs> missed the uh, students and missed the research availability. But this has really mm. been a, a great change for me to do psychotherapy. How I got yeah. involved in revisioning was I had been doing EEG for a long time. So I'm, I graduated from a behavioral medicine program. And so we got training in medications and also in biofeedback, all types of biofeedback and other types of ways to measure concepts in the body. And that led me to getting interested in EEG. And particularly then when I found out about the discovery of the mirror neuron system is that there was a test we could use that we could use EEG for to determine mirror neuron activation, a very simple test. I started doing that. And the Ramachandran's work with the mirror and doing mirror therapy for phantom limb pain had not come out yet. There was about mm. five or 10 years in between the discovery of mirror neurons and his work. But we were kind of learning that the mirror neuron system was not only for action observation. When you observe an action, your mirror neuron system, which is kind of a headband from ear to ear, if you put a woman's headband on your head, that's about where the mm -hmm. motor cortex is right below in the scalp, right below the scalp on the brain. So we also were beginning to feel that it was uh, responsible for empathy, too. So I probably guess one of my first recording efforts was a group of us went down for a training session to work with dolphins hmm. in uh, Grand Bahama Island. And that's where they have all the trained dolphins that they've used in most of the movies. So we got to spend five days there with like all day with the dolphins and swimming with them, doing their feeding them, training them, doing everything. And wow. I would measure participants EEG activity before and after their swim with the dolphins and found that then all the, all the participants, their mirror neuron system was activated after they played with the dolphins. Mm -hmm. And so it was looking like that, you know, playing with dolphins doesn't necessarily increase your ability to observe motor behaviors and observe action, but it really does increase empathy. Mm -hmm. Everybody felt like they had just connected in a way with something they had never connected with. And they were all therapists. And so everybody felt mm -hmm. like they kind of increased their ability to empathize and to tune in with clients because if you can learn to tune in with a dolphin and largely the dolphins do it for us they, they learn to tune in with us 
And that led to kind of an understanding of not only what the mirror neuron system is, but then to mirror therapy once Ramachandran developed that five or 10 Mm -hmm. years after the discovery of mirror neurons. Can I ask about the empathy first before you go to the next part? Because I'm thinking about when I learned about the the insular cortex and the, the mirror neuron and the empathy, I think of it it's an embodied empathy instead of just a cognitive empathy. And Mm -hmm. I imagine if you're tuning into a dolphin, because there isn't language, there is the cognitive empathy. You don't develop that with them because you're not talking to a dolphin, right? So is is there a difference between like a cognitive form of empathy and an embodied form of empathy? Or did I just like make that up? Well, they talk about cognitive empathy and emotional empathy, which may be mm-hmm. a term you're representing with embodied mm-hmm. empathy. But but that's really just another description of it is embodied empathy, mm-hmm. because we don't literally learn to read minds, but we think we can, because we just mm-hmm. simply by observing somebody's actions and observing what those actions relate to, mm-hmm. then I start to notice, well, every time Sarah does this, you know, and she's explaining something to me, it means mm-hmm. this. And I can start to predict, especially if I'm living with a person, having you know strong relationship, a long-term relationship with somebody, then I learn to read minds. And yeah. I'm putting quotes up, air quotes, because yeah. I know you can't see me. <laughs> but uh, the empathy involves in the ability to not just understand what somebody's feeling. Like, for example, you're talking to a client for the very first time, because we're all kind of trained in that. But the other kind of training is is really intuitive training. And just by spending time with people, we learn how to anticipate what they're going to say next. You know, the couple that, mm-hmm. that learns to finish each other's sentences. So that's an example of embodied mind reading, really. And so yeah. we're, we're taking all that information from emotional and, and motor cues, mm-hmm. all the movements that we make, and we're turning it in into, oh, she's feeling this. Now, it doesn't always match. Because I teach couples not to do the mind reading that interferes with a relationship Mm. because that can become not productive. But anyway, so that's how we learn to kind of read minds is through just understanding where our actions are going to, what our Mm. words are going to next and that concept. So also I've learned to, so the embodied empathy is that I can anticipate what you're feeling from Mm. where your words are going. And having worked with you know thousands of clients, we learn to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. This pause means that, you know, she's probably going to start sharing some deeper feelings and so forth. Yeah. And then you were about to talk about the phantom limb pain before I took us back to empathy. So we please share because that's that part when, when it was described to me, I was like, what the hell? That's it doesn't make any sense how that connection was made, but it's so brilliant that you made it. So please enlighten us. Well, yeah. So I was going on my diatribe about my history and I had I did make a link there between therapy and revisioning. So after I started reading Ramachandran's work, I, I was getting maybe so I, I treat primarily depression, anxiety, and most, you know, not most, but most of the more common mental disorders. And I, I'm just saying grief, trauma, depression, mm-hmm. and anxiety. So I don't treat TBIs, traumatic brain injury, or schizophrenia, autism, mm-hmm. some of those things. But Ramachandran's work was the first to denote that autistic individuals have a dysfunctioning mirror neuron system. Their brains weren't lighting up when they would watch somebody else do an action. And the actions that we have clients do in my office when we're recording EEG is just simply pick up a pen, put it back down, or pick up a peanut, put mm. it back down. Just keep picking up something, put it back down. And that's the actual direct motor skill. So that lights up the mirror neuron system because it's connected to the motor cortex. Mm. But an autistic individual, when they're watching somebody else move, 
they don't register that mirror neuron activation like the rest of us who don't have mm. autism do. So that's just kind of the, the neuroscience part of it that was real interesting. But because I was seeing a few stroke victims, uh, a couple of chronic pain patients that had a very unusual condition that all could benefit from mirror therapy. And so I was eager to get on the bandwagon and start just practicing regular mirror therapy for phantom limb pain. And so how that works is creates an illusion with the mirror that the either amputated or dysfunctional limb is reattached. Because when you look at it in the mirror at your good arm, you can see what looks like the illusion is that it's your your missing or your dysfunctional limb that's actually there moving in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And so an illusion is strong enough to activate the mirror neuron system and strong enough to magically eliminate phantom limb pain within two or three 10-minute sessions. Mm. And so this is the kind of thing I was saying was that, wow, this is so interesting that then the patient knows it's an illusion because they don't, they know they haven't reattached their arm or that mm -hmm. they haven't undone their stroke. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they're getting, I had so several patients, I was able to get that real quick pain relief and get back some functional use with a couple of the stroke victims, which they've since been doing a lot of with EEG and with also mirror therapy that they can, if somebody has an amputated limb, they can actually see it in the cortex that there's EEG changes where that hand, that missing hand or that amputated hand or that arm that had a stroke in that part of the cortex on the opposite part of the hemisphere, right limb connects with left hemisphere, you know, you could see that diffuse organization where it had changed. And so what, ha what causes phantom limb pain is neuroplasticity in the motor cortex. And so neuroplasticity means the brain in this case is actually kind of the cells that relate to that, to one body part, let's say a hand migrates. And so the hand is located right about just about two inches above my ear. That's huh. where the actual location of the hand is on wow. the sensory motor homunculus. So if you take the skull mm -hmm. out, you know, this would be about two inches above your ear would be about where the hand is. But when the hand is either removed due to amputation or is dysfunctional due to a stroke, those parts start to move around. And for example, when the guy that Ramachandran talks about in one of his books, his, um, hand could now be felt on his shoulder, which was located above on mm. the cortex above where the hand was. And it could also be felt on his face. But can you imagine? So what he would do is he would take a Q-tip, put it on this guy's face. So this would be the opposite side of the face where his hand was missing. And the guy could say, oh, I can feel my index finger on my lip. When you touch my lip with your Q-tip, I can feel my pinky there. And I can feel my thumb over here on my cheek. Mm. And different parts of the face were where those motor cortex cells had migrated to. So that's what mm. the neuroplasticity is. I started to think, well, something just hit me one day that because I treated for many years, patients who I came to understand later on had complicated grief or prolonged grief. It's now got a fancy name, a persistent complex bereavement disorder. And that is grief that goes beyond six months technically in the DSM-5. But really, it can go on for years and years. And it, so a person can be, we could treat them for their depression, their anxiety. They might not have even talked about a longing for some relative that had died five or 10 years before. They came mm -hmm. in for other issues. And so we would treat them for those issues and they'd be fine. And all of a sudden, I'd say, well, do you have any unresolved grief about this, you know, your dad who died five years ago? And they might just completely start crying. And mm. they couldn't, they said, I can't even look at pictures of him. And I can't even talk about him without getting extremely emotionally distressed.
And so I thought, well, that's so different because you're very functional. You're not depressed anymore. But when you accept in this little sphere of your life, when we talk about this person that you've got complicated grief with. So I just had the light bulb went off in my head that instead of creating an illusion that the uh, arm is reattached, why don't we just create an illusion that the person who you're experiencing grief with has been reattached in your life? And it didn't make any difference because, again, they know that the person's gone. They're Mm -hmm. not coming back, you know, but the mirror creates an illusion that they're sitting right beside you. And so when you put the mirror up, patients are um, looking next to them thinking, oh, my gosh. He's right there. She's right there. I want to mm. hug him. And they start to put their arm around the stick I have. That's, so I have a prop that has a stick with a, I put a shirt on it, on a hanger that hangs from it. And then I've got the headshot of that person taped to the top of the stick. So when you look uh. at it in there, it kind of looks like there's somebody dressed up who's sitting right next to you. So that immediately, I called mm. it the longest 10 minutes in history. <laughs> because within 10 minutes, people would go through all the emotions of grief that you could imagine. From mm. a lot of anger to a lot of sadness, fear. I mean, fear if they that related to maybe some anxiety they had when they lost the person. And but within ten to twenty minutes, uh, most people start calming down with their emotions. They start to talk about a f- happy experience with the person, or even a funny anecdote about the person. And when mm. we call that the calm place, and when that happens, then they're usually finished. And the next day, because all learning happens when you're sleeping then they feel this amazing resolution that they're reconnected to the person and Mm. that they have not, because in complicated grief, what happens is you haven't just lost the person, you've lost your identity. And this is what we started to find over a long period of working with these people is that they've lost their identity. They've lost their energy, their happiness, their Mm. laughter, their flow, and a lot of other things, even their identity. And Mm. so if you have somebody that you've been, loving physically in a you know love relationship for many years and you suddenly lose that i mean it's like kind of all your body is aching and that's really true that's part of the phantom limb experience is that mm-hmm. that's happening so this reversed all that within 10 to 20 minutes and by the next day they were i'd say you know the, the complicated grief was cured uh, this is the only mm-hmm. cure for really prolonged or complicated grief that we've been able to find and it's uh, kind of turned that field around so we very rarely have to have a second session. Now, if it, obviously, if it was a traumatic grief, we would have to do different trauma techniques to help with the trauma. If they witnessed the death or if there was any part of that death that was uh, trauma, you know, like a death of a child is extremely traumatic, whether you witness it or not. It's, but there are certain deaths, you know, there's a lot of trauma involved. So we might have mm-hmm. still have to do some trauma techniques to kind of resolve some of that trauma, but that's easily taken care of after we did the revisioning. Yeah. Um, Would you actually talk more about using it for developmental trauma? Because that was my experience with it. I'd love for you to kind of set it up. And then I'd love to share with you what my experience was and ask you some questions truly about it, if that's all right. So I wrote our first book on revisioning. I say our because after I wrote that book, a therapist from down the street called and said, hey, Mark, um, well, I just picked up your book and I didn't even realize it was you because I was looking on some stuff for grief because she had a client she was working with. And so we started talking. I said, oh, yeah, I've got, I literally wrote the book in like one month after I'd been, I think I saw my first 14 clients doing the revisioning, which is the mirror therapy for grief. And she happened to be the first one that picked up a copy. So we started commiserating and and talking and doing sessions with each other, but largely just giving feedback on doing sessions with other clients. And so this is Lynn Heselton I'm talking about. And she had worked with a lot more trauma and even personality disorders and DID clients, dissociative mm. identity disorder clients. 
which was, was not one of my specialties. And so she said, would you be mm-hmm. willing to see if we can integrate this into other spheres of mental health treatment? And I said, well, sure. So I came up with a really nice example of trauma that wasn't, it happened to be in childhood, but I wouldn't say it was really complex or developmental trauma because she had a great set of parents and everything was going great in her family. But there was a trauma that happened when she was very, very young, very significant trauma and didn't have anything to do with the family, but it happened with an outsider. So I simply put a picture of her at a really happy event before the trauma happened. Hmm. And so the trauma, I think, was about eight or nine. So she pulled out a six-year-old picture of her really happy and beaming at a birthday party. So she's the center of attention. So we put the picture, just taped it to the couch and then put the mirror up. And so she's looking Mm. at this actually pretty small picture, about a six by six or so, taped to the couch next to her. So she sees that in the mirror and she starts crying and says, you know, I never was able to get out in front of the camera or in front of people and be center stage with a camera after that event happened. Mm. Always head behind people. I would be off to the shadows or off to the side. Obviously, completely lost my peace and calm as well Mm. as my happiness. And so she emoted for 15 minutes or so and then kind of calmed down. And so the next day we talked and she said, because I wanted to find out, you know, we were just getting into, this was the very first PTSD client Mm. I'd worked with for that. And she said she was feeling much better that she had, as many PTSD clients do, she had had claustrophobia. She couldn't even drive to a city close by to look for a job. And she said that suddenly she was able to drive in her car without claustrophobia again. And so Mm. we realized that this was more than just identity, losing my identity of someone I've lost. And so with the person who's lost, in complicated grief, we call we started calling that phantom person grief, mm. a phantom person pain because it's a person mm. you've lost instead of a phantom limb instead of mm-hmm. a limb you've lost. But in trauma, though, we started calling it phantom ego pain because Ooh. you've lost you've lost <laughs> yeah. part of your ego, you've lost part Oof. of your your happy, safe identity with other parts of your self esteem. Back then, you know, you've lost that, and so that's the phantom ego pain is how we differentiate that from the developmental and PTSD mm. trauma with uh, complicated grief. But Lynn really helped add on some of the pieces with personality disorder, attachment disorders, and dissociative identity disorder. Mm. And because she had a lot of those clients and she wanted to get right into that. And so we just started working for solidly for about two years until we came out with our second book, which mm. defines, you know, because we started working on protocols and we had to fine tune those <laughs> over a period of time and before we got them really nailed down. And now we seem to have gotten them pretty well nailed down that they seem to work for all the clients that that continue to come in. I think we've eliminated the Hawthorne and the placebo effect from doing this because when we do it virtually now, you can't really bring your personality into the situation because then you're just using a technique. They're using their own mirror, their own drawings and Mm. photographs at home. So it's working just as powerfully virtually as it was in person. So Mm. I'm a lot more confident now that this is going to be a great addition to the psychotherapy scene. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you about the drawings because that was my experience was drawing the different pictures. And it was so fascinating to me because I'm I'm a terrible drawer. (laughs) So everybody says. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that most people would say that. And I do you understand completely how the drawing works, too? Because the picture makes a lot of sense to me. But the drawing, I'm like, how is this? representative of what's going on here. 
most people say that they are terrible artists and I say stick figures are fine. You can just yeah. draw whatever, you know, I want to give them some dimensions because if they draw, I tell them don't draw a postage size stamp shape of something. This needs to be big enough where you can turn it around and hold it up mm-hmm. to the mirror. So you can mm-hmm. see yourself in the drawing in pretty much mm-hmm. balanced way. But we actually even found that, I think Lynn was talking about this at first when we first started doing this, that she was finding that drawings were even working as good, if not better, sometimes. So people don't really have a lot of happy drawings in mm-hmm. their childhood. Mm-hmm. It's one thing you usually do. We usually do have a picture of somebody we've lost. But to have happy photos at a particular time, which would be during or before a trauma happened, Mm-hmm. And especially at different stages. So you're, so PTSD is usually like one trauma or maybe if it's veteran trauma, they've had a, several traumas over the period of one or two years while they were deployed. But developmental trauma can be all through from birth to 18 or 25. And so there's not just a, you know, it's not just abuse, but it's also neglect. And so right. it doesn't have to be strong abuse. It can be bullying of any type and also neglect. So or just emotional neglect. I saw a client whose mother had worked on her PhD during the first year of her life. So mm-hmm. from zero to one, mm-hmm. her mother was caring for her, but also finishing up her PhD. And apparently it took so much time away that the client developed DID just because there was a lack of comforting and cuddling and so forth in that first mm-hmm. year. So it doesn't have to be intentional, strong abuse or neglect. Right. It can be other things, even if a parent had to go to the hospital several yep. times during the first year of life that can take mm-hmm. them away long enough where they don't have that other piece thing they need. So, yeah. so drawings became a good, a really the most standard way of doing this when mm-hmm. we do it for developmental trauma, even PTSD, because they know what they're drawing and they mm-hmm. had a woman draw a, no, actually she brought in a photograph and she brought in a, one of those tiny school picture photographs and mm-hmm. when she was on a, during college or something. And so I said, well, that's pretty little. Let me go in the other room and see if I can blow it up. And so I blew it up and every, I blew it up about twice. And the pixels were so large and scattered out that you could barely even tell it was her. Mm. And so she says, I know who this is and I can mm. tell. So let's, let's use this picture. We put it up to the mirror and instantly mm. she regained a lot of her identity that she had lost during a real abusive marriage for about 20 years. And mm. said it just completely changed her life. So so we kind of realized it was uh, as long as you kind of know what's within the drawing or the picture mm. or the photograph, it really is just as good. And because somebody's drawing it, sometimes it seems to enhance it more because they're putting mm. their own elements that maybe could not be put into a photograph. And also most of our photographs from childhood are posed photographs. So you don't right. have those candid ones out there too much that are yeah. showing just true joy at its highest. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So my experience was about developmental trauma. And so we did, we drew pre-birth. So like in utero through age 18. And my, my most significant experience was I think around age 13 was what I was drawing. And it's funny because it seems so silly. So she was kind of, the therapist was asking like, you know, what was going on at that time? And one, one of my biggest struggles at 13 was I wasn't allowed to call boys. My mom was terrified of me getting pregnant, so I wasn't allowed to call boys. And most of my friends were male, and they were platonic friends, so it was it was really innocuous. But that was there was a big power struggle that was happening. And so her question of, you know, what is it that you needed for yourself? Autonomy and respect was what I needed. And when I held that drawing up to the mirror with my adult self in there, I really, truly felt like I was being given autonomy and respect in Mm -hmm. such an embodied, profound way that was so, it was so incredible. Actually, like a couple hours later, I had this like 
really crazy spiritual experience too. And I really think that that moment, that shift, it's truly changed the way that I show up in relationship to, you know, running my practice and with my clients, because I've been experiencing a lot of kind of codependent, like I need to caretake and, and stuff like that, really causing myself a lot of pain, knowing that it's this like internal process. But there's something about that, like I have autonomy, I have respect, I have choices, just like that. In one session, it was so incredible, which is why I like immediately like reached out to you as soon as I had that experience, because it was just amazing. And I think one of the most powerful parts about revisioning is that it, we, it's kind of what we call a bottom-up technique instead of a top-down right. technique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So cognitive therapy and other techniques where you're using consciousness are top-down techniques. So you're using some consciousness to change something. Mm -hmm. repeating an affirmation over and over to help with my negative thinking. But very similar to somatic experiencing and also a little bit to neurofeedback training, revisioning is one of those things that happens at the sensory and perception level. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of, that's why we say bottom up, kind of hitting those centers of the brain, the the very primitive centers before it actually goes up into consciousness. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times people are going, I feel really different. Something's happening and I don't know what's going on. So we'll ask them to describe it physically. So where, what mm, sensations mm-hmm. are you feeling in your body? Well, either tightness in my chest or maybe even butterflies in my stomach or, mm-hmm. or maybe even a warm feeling in my body if I'm starting to connect to something positive. So when we train therapists, a lot of somatic experiencing therapists who focus on body sensations, well, a lot of times they'll say, well, this is pretty easy to learn for us. And I think so I've mm-hmm. a lot of people, if they can't find the revisioning therapist in some part of the country, you go find you a somatic experiencing therapist. But revisioning is so rapid, though, and most therapists really realize that because they say, you know, we don't even know what's taking place, but all of a sudden I'm crying. Often we train therapists, and so I was training mm-hmm. this therapist, and, and this therapist was a major EMDR trainer in my neighborhood, very good therapist, and we were trading off therapies, and I, they were training me a little bit more about EMDR, and I was training them on some revisioning. So we did a session on each other at different days, and so she came over to my office, and I did a session with her. And she said, well, I've been through all the psychotherapy and everything, you know, I've, I've attacked it from every different direction. And I feel like everything's resolved. You know, I said, well, let's go ahead and just to show you what it is. Let's kind of show you what it, how it operates as we do mm-hmm. this. So, I mean, we were no sooner into some of the reflecting statements like, I am your older self, little so-and-so, I'm your older self. We start, because right. that's how we connect to the mirror. And then we also connect verbally to your infant self or your, your very early self in the development faith as soon as they she started doing that tears started welling up in her eyes and she tried to hide them you know just kind of say because i'm over all this well maybe not quite yeah right (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and so you see that a lot and it's so nice to see because you've developed we've developed a therapy that really goes Mm -hmm. faster and deeper into a lot of issues that other therapies just don't seem and more the rational therapies you know don't seem to be able to get to because we're kind of hitting it from the bottom up. So that's one reason it really is so profound and powerful and and rapid too. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this other question, because one of the things that I found challenging in the experience was there were, there were times where as my adult self, I was asked to give certain things to my child self, 
But I had the sense that my adult self still didn't have the capacity to give those to the child self. So what we ended up doing was calling in my higher self. (laughs) So whenever my adult self didn't feel able to do the things, I would draw in my higher self in the picture. And that then somehow like created the shift. So I I don't know if you're spiritually inclined at all, but I don't know if you've seen anything like that or have, have had that experience with clients or have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, a lot of times they can't see themselves providing comfort or nurturing to their their baby self or their little self on that mm-hmm. they're drawing. There might have been transitional objects or even relatives or pets mm. that kind of serve that function too. So okay. draw me the most people if they had a security blanket or a doll or a toy mm. for more than a couple of years in their childhood. You know, that's probably a sign of developmental trauma because they did oh. bond with this item this transitional object and hold on to it for quite a while. Sometimes people hang on to it for 12, Mm. 13 years, Mm. like a security blanket or that something else. I remember having my own um, bot, I called it. It was my pillow and I carried it with me, not with me Mm. outside my bedroom, but I had it with me and it was, I wanted to take it when we moved after my parents went through divorce and I moved, Mm. I kept that thing with me. So I had this old brown, yellow, and I mean, it started off white. But it was brown and yellow. It was brown yeah. and yellow by now. <laughs> Probably till I was 13 or 14 before my yeah. mother threw it away. So those can provide very good transitional objects, which provide mm. the comforting and provide our attachment that we need. So mm. if there's a grand, you know, grandparent or a aunt or uncle or somebody or, you know, who was a good comforting person, you can use that person. But yeah, the higher health is also something we call the healing self. And some of my clients have difficult times kind of conceptualizing what a healing self is, but definitely we'll use some way to provide that through objects and things that we draw into that picture, you know, that are comforting. And after Mm -hmm. we've got enough of them, then they start to feel like, okay, well, yeah, now I can start to feel that warmth and that comforting that I used to get from these objects or maybe from my pet or my grandparent or something like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'd never heard that before, but as soon as you said that transitional objects are supportive for developmental trauma, that makes complete sense. Yeah. And that sort of comes out of Freudian therapy with attachment and so forth. Mm -hmm. But really, revisioning is not just a brain-based technique because it activates the mirror neuron system. It's also an attachment-based technique, like psychoanalysis and some Mm -hmm. of the, you know, Rogerian client-centered therapy. I mean, they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum, but still they both involve attachment. And so it kind of falls into another, a bunch of different categories. But that rapid comforting is one of the things we notice so quickly that somebody can feel. And you know that their mirror neuron system is lighting up. You can see when that happens because their whole demeanor just changes. Mm -hmm. And a lot Mm -hmm. of them will say, okay, well, after you've done EMDR, after you've done meditation, after you've done neurofeedback, after you've done revisioning, which one? You know, I say, I still go back to the revisioning. A lot of clients just say that that was the turning point. And, mm-hmm, and because mm-hmm. it acts so rapidly, they know that that was the day. It was a turning yeah. Yeah. A lot of clients are doing simultaneous deliveries of different protocols, medication changes, mm. not so much therapy changes if they're seeing the same therapist, but maybe they're seeing two therapists. Often I will see do the trauma work while they're seeing their other therapist. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of changes happening all the time, but they can say, you know, they, they might have had a medication change one day after we did revisioning, but no, I felt that difference that day. And I knew that was the thing that really, and I'm still using that drawing, you know, mm-hmm. or imagining that drawing in my head to help me with all future stressors. So mm-hmm. That's wonderful. 
Well, I'm curious your answer to to this question, and it's one of the questions that I always ask my guests, but how do you feel about the term healer as applied to your work and what you do? Well, healer healing means to make whole. So, I mean, I feel like that we try to, I guess that's why I wear a lot of patches on my sleeve because I'm prescribing psychologist and that's probably least of my duties because I much prefer doing therapy than doing meds. But still, you have to understand what's going on even in the person's brain. And so that makes whole as well. And so if I know a client has done some revisioning work, I'm pretty strongly assured that they've resolved those trauma issues. And if they still have anxiety and difficulties, then I'll do an EEG on them. And I've got a pretty mm. sure shot way of diagnosing bipolar disorder and OCD and differentiating those from ADD mm. on a, just using an EEG. Yeah, so with just one minute of EEG, I can tell them, well, okay, you, you have some issues that may need to be treated with medication. So mm -hmm. we treat most of the developmental disorders, which are depression, not bipolar depression, but unipolar depression, and not autism, because that's more biological. But mm -hmm. anything that's learning-based, those are the ones that work really good through revisioning. But mm -hmm. if they have bipolar disorder, that's going to be genetic and they probably need some support, some medical, some medication support for bipolar disorder. Uh, so that's kind of my wholeness, how it integrates. I mean, I like revisioning is very art and music designed. I, I mean, I did grow up in, a, like I said, with 15 years of music therapy teaching and techniques I developed in music therapy also were mirroring techniques. Mm -hmm. We learned how to use in music improvisation to mirror a person's pain to mirror a person's imagery mm. of their cancer. And then we would change that music so it went in a healing direction. Mm. So I try to be kind of as broad spectrum as I can to create healing because, you know, obviously we can't do all the healing. Healing is also spiritual. And so mm -hmm. it's the relationship with others, the relationship with their higher power. So I kind of try to, you know, hit all those spokes of the wheel to make mm -hmm. healing as broad as it can be. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And I'm glad you brought up music again because we actually have that connection. I was music major in undergrad and I, I thought about doing music therapy, but there wasn't, at the time, there wasn't a program in Chicago that I could do. But personally, and I've also seen with clients that music is so healing. And I'm, I'm curious because you know so much about the brain, if you have an understanding of why it is so healing from a neurological perspective. Oh, yeah. I've I done, knew you I've would. Done, <laughs> I've done a lot of research on music and healing. And they've done a lot of studies on music. And they found that music activates almost every neuro, what we call healing neurotransmitter in the brain. Mm, so dopamine is your, when you're putting on a piece of music and you know it's produced pleasure in you before, then that's dopamine. Mm. Dopamine is the anticipation of a reward. Mm -hmm. When you're hearing something new and exciting in a piece you've played for two or three years, you know, and, oh, I never heard that before. That's dopamine as well. Mm -hmm. Now, if you cry to music, because music can be, how is music so emotional that it can, even without words, how can mm -hmm. instrumental music bring us to tears? Well, that's endorphins right there. And when music makes you feel a sense of accomplishment, whether you're playing or performing music or just listening to it, because often listeners get the sense that they can identify with the composer and they yeah. sort of ride yeah. on that composer's coattails and so that's serotonin. Some of my research indicated that music listening and music performing activates the mirror neuron system. And so the mm -hmm. chemical of the mirror neuron system is oxytocin. The oxytocin mm. is your friendship and bonding chemical, but oxytocin mm -hmm. also is your motor action observation chemical. So 
So when mm. they had people use uh, nasal spray oxytocin, which is really the only way you can get it, only and only researchers can get it, unfortunately, but mm. it activates complex motor behaviors and improves like eye-hand coordination and things like that. But it also improves empathy and everything else. So really, music is one of the broadest stimuli that evokes almost every center in the brain and every neurotransmitter in the brain. So that's so cool. It can be so healing because what's healing to me. So if we and I both love Mozart's symphony, you could like it for a totally different reason than I could like it. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. activating different neurotransmitters and parts of the brain. So it's very, very powerful. And and I did a lot of techniques uh, using music as mirroring. What do those look like? Well, the example I was just giving you, we call an entrainment session. And so mm-hmm. I did a lot of work on using entrainment music. So entrainment music, because we had to develop our own music, because you know, there was no music that you could use that would do the following. And that was, I was very involved in imagery of disease, imagery of pain, and, and developing healing, imagery for cancer, autoimmunity, pain, and, and things like that. The mentors I, that I got my PhD under, Gene Octorberg, Carl Simonton, some of those people, they were using imagery with cancer patients and found out that the thing that was correlated the most with their survivability was not their blood chemistries or the tumor size or things like that, but it was actually the perceived effectiveness of your imagery. So if you Mm -hmm. drew an image of like wolves going in and attacking the cancer, and that was your kind of abstract imagery that you used, and you could see it pretty vividly, then that was the most Mm -hmm. highly correlated item with survivability. Incredible. So the music, I tried to find music that would stimulate imagery. And so the, the most powerful music mm. we could find, I invented this type of music called entrainment music. And we would very simply start with some improvised music of maybe no more than eight musicians, maybe just three or four. And we would sit around in a group and kind of start with music that accentuated their pain or maybe kind of accentuated their imagery of their cancer. So it might be mm. for cancer, a lot of people draw red or, or black or brown. Mm. So we kind of drew, we kind of played brown or black music. So it's mm. kind of sludgy. The music usually didn't communicate very well. It was just mm. kind of random sounds, which is kind of like what cancer does. And it also mm. might have been pretty active and like cancer cells are. And then we would, the music would shift very quickly after a couple of minutes, but it would shift gradually, not just a sudden shift. So the music would start to improvise music. It was a little bit more coordinated, had more of a lullaby melody to it. It had a nice rhythmic feel to it. And so you got a bunch of musicians who were sitting around not knowing what immune system imagery would look like or even sound like, but somehow it all came together. And we would Mm. usually produce this music that always would sound very similar, no matter who we would do it with. And so that highly increased their imagery of their immune system or their treatment that they were doing and consequently led to the biggest treatment goals that we were, you know, so pain relief, Mm -hmm. disease management, disease control, things like that. So that was kind of entrainment music. And so I'm always looking to do other entrainment musics because I've got a bag of instruments that I use, which are kind of fail-safe instruments that people can play that that are still Mm. melodic or rhythmic and, you know, you don't ever reproduce the same instrument. And people just have this incredible feeling when they do. It's almost like they're levitating off the ground when they Mm. are hearing their music that's made for them about them. And you can see that that almost carries over to, although there was no conscious attempt to do this in terms of using the mirror to reflect Mm -hmm. back what people are imaging in their mind as well, you know? Yeah. That's incredible. Thank you so much. 
Mm-hmm. And we're coming to the end of our time, but I I imagine there are probably folks out there who are really excited about learning more about revisioning. And I'm curious, since we're in the midst of coronavirus right now, I don't know if you are doing trainings online, but how can people find more about this and, and when will you be doing trainings? Well, that's our main access to the public is to train other therapists. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. most of the therapists in most states can't practice outside their state of jurisdiction, mm-hmm. even uh, telephonically. So I've, they've kind of bended the rules for virtual rules for like, you know, for most therapists. It turns on what platform you can use, but they, you still can't practice outside of your state. Right. But I tell every, everybody who's got a therapist in some other state, get your therapist to sign up for training with us. It requires mm-hmm. 14 hours of training about half of which is didactic and then experiential. And then the other part is with them working on their own patients. So they can train through us. Our website is revisioningcenterforgriefandtrauma.com. They can contact us that way for training. And if you're a client, a prospective client, whether you're a therapist or not, reach out to us about getting your own therapist trained. And we do, we're doing that virtually as well as the conventional way. We're kind of, oh, we're, we haven't moved back to a conventional training yet, but we're going to probably pretty shortly. So. Oh, great. Okay. So you are training virtually. That's awesome. Virtually now. And then we'll yeah. probably go back to, but the virtuals worked out really well for all our therapies. We're doing yeah. EMDR and revisioning. Uh, can't do biofeedback or neurofeedback that yeah. way yet. But revisioning's working out great virtually. And so the training's working out really good too. So we've trained a lot of therapists. Uh, we're, we're one of the biggest trainers of the therapists at Sierra Tucson Center out in um, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And they're doing some research with us right now. And we've trained most of their therapists and are still training their therapists. So uh, there's a hospital in Dallas that's also used, utilized our services to train their therapists. That's wonderful. Well, before we end, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, I've got some revisioning exercises to use during COVID, during the pandemic, oh. with the isolation and, and changes if people lost jobs and things like that, lost others. So there, these are the kind of the fail-safe or very simple exercises anyone can use without having to do it with a therapist. Mm. So they're, they're, they're very simple exercises to use a mirror with. And so that, you know, don't need a lot of counseling. It can make them feel good within seconds, you know, within 30, mm. 60 seconds. And so those are on our website, the Revisioning Center for Grief and Trauma dot com, as well as my website, drmarkrider.com. And those are working out very well. And so a lot of people are writing in saying how much they're liking having had those. So that's when we started feeling that virtually could be a good way of training. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm very grateful that you that you created this so that I could experience the healing. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad you had a chance to have a great result from it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much to Dr. Mark Ryder for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about revisioning or Dr. Mark Ryder, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. And thanks to you for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.